0: construes specific investment advice and if you do require advice you should seek an appropriate advisor be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer.
1: I think she has actually a really healthy relationship with money. I think she's careful but not miserly and I think she's been a very good steward of her funds so I like to honor and respect her relationship with that.
0: This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program. The entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to the CE
2: Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Uh, in this episode, I'll be interviewing Ellen Covey. I was super happy when Ellen reached out to me actually with this story, because it's exactly the kind of thing that I was looking for an opportunity to talk about. I'll cover that more at the end of the episode. Um, this is going to be good for uh, life insurance credits in all jurisdictions. For those in Alberta, it'll be good for one life and a half an accident and sickness credit. It'll be good for a financial planning credit. From FD Canada, a professional development credit from IROC, and a retirement planning credit from um, MFDA. And we're going to roll right into the episode here. Um, before I do, I just want to cover off our objects. And the object is my ARC card. Um, I don't know if I get in trouble for sure. A little USB, whatever. Uh, this is the City of Edmonton's regional transit card. It's like a Presto card for those in Toronto. It's like a tap on, tap off thing. Um, pretty nice. I don't take the train every day, so I don't buy a pass. But I like to take the train slash bus when I come to the office and yeah, it, uh, it works reasonably well, and kudos to City of Edmonton for rolling that out. So the uh, object for today is an ARC card. All right, with that, let's roll into the episode. I'm here today with Ellen Covey. Ellen is a financial planner based in Calgary, um, CFP certificate. Can you give us a little uh, rundown of who you are and what kind of business you operate, Ellen?
1: Thanks, yes. Uh Thank you to your excellent teaching. I got my QFP and CFP and a year and a half last year. So I give you all the credit for that. And um, I started my group benefits business with a partner at Sun Life in 2017. And just did group exclusively for the first couple of years, but then realized that business owners really needed a lot more planning. Uh, lots of the small business guys. And I wanted to expand. So I got my mutual fund license back. And um, just decided to do holistic planning.
2: You were in the securities business way back when, Ellen, right? This is, yeah. So you're you're not new to this business. You've kind of floated around the business here and there. And now back in this real self-employment situation.
1: Yeah, I joked that I was a stockbroker in my last life. Because I was in and out of the securities business then. But when I found myself back in finance, this time I really wanted to do more broad level planning. As opposed to just trade.
2: Yeah, The industry has changed a lot since then. I think that probably when you were a stockbroker, financial planning wasn't even really much of a thing.
1: No, our joke was, what's a bond? Like, we were very focused on one thing.
2: <laughs> That's good. Um, all right, so do you have... Um, an ideal client, I'll start on the individual side. Is there somebody, um, if, you know, if, if it's a net worth case or a type of behavior or a certain demographic, is there a client that you really like dealing with?
1: There is, and it has evolved out of the group. But my ideal client is sort of a middle-aged business owner who runs a small organization, you know, just themselves to maybe a handful of staff. They are really good at this thing that they know how to do but they're running a business kind of by app. And so they don't know what they don't know. And I find that's where I can bring the most value. You know, they don't know what a health spending account is. They don't, they know their staff need dental care, but they don't know how to navigate that landscape. They don't realize they should have disability coverage, right? Like there's so many things that that a small business owner, they don't even know what to ask because no one gets a business degree before they start their company. And uh, that's where I find, I really resonate with that group and love working.
2: And would you find then that you end up doing a fair bit of, um, I'm going to say consulting work? Like do you, I, you know, sort of like, this is just how a business runs. These are some of the things that you can think about in operating your business that maybe these folks aren't doing.
1: Yeah, I, I'm obviously not a trained accountant, but I work very closely with a local CPA as well. And so we find we can kind of wrap our arms around both sides of, you know, she can lend her expertise on the accounting side. We can talk cash flow. We can talk marketing, you know, things like that and become a bit of a sounding board. And I find that very, very rewarding.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, now, I assume that's your same uh, target market on the group side. That's your same ideal client on the group side. You would have a lot of overlap.
1: Yeah, a lot of overlap. In fact, the heart of planning came out of recognizing that I could touch the benefit side, but I could see the need. And I thought, I really want to be able to lend some support there.
2: So it's not what I invited you to ask about today, but I do have a couple follow-on questions here. Do you find, um, like, have you had clients sell their
1: businesses? Not yet. And that's very interesting. Our mutual friend is an expert in designing business to be saleable, to get the most value, to have the highest chance of success for the new owner coming. And I've just found either by rote of, my own age. I'm working with people who are sort of five, 10 years in and maybe 10 years out to fail. So I haven't witnessed it yet, but I'm very keenly interested in helping people find that success as well.
2: And of course, you're, you're talking about uh, Robert Welke here and I'll get Robert on the podcast one day. Um, it's uh, It's just a matter of working through my guest list. So <laughs> it's good. I like it. And yeah, you know, the, the thing I was kind of wondering about here is would you expect then? And I asked because, um, I saw this in our own business, right? So, you know, we sold, we had a benefits rep, uh, who was fantastic. Uh, Tasha might be out there listening. Hello Tasha. And she, uh, unfortunately didn't keep the business when that happened. Right. And I, you know, I wonder sort of what, and the new group is fantastic as well, actually both, uh, another previous podcast guest, the good folks advantage group. So, you know, it's, uh, it's something that I was wondering, like if you're building that way and you're doing some exit planning, is there some, I don't want to say risk, because that's not the right way to look at it, I think. But, you know, you're, you're going to have clients there that when they sell, they sell to bigger entities that you don't necessarily get to keep the benefits business, right?
1: Yeah, I would say that's probably more common than not, especially if they're selling to a larger organization. If it's a new owner coming in or, you know, transitioning to kids. There's maybe a chance that that relationship will be maintained. But if somebody coming in already has a pre-existing relationship with an advisor or is a large group, I will probably not stay with the company.
2: And I mean, good to acknowledge that reality, right? Very good. So you had reached out to me specifically um, about a sort of lower income, lower asset client. And I think this is because you've heard me talk about pro bono planning a little bit. So you knew this is something that I care about. We're going to call this person, Jen, not her real name, but it's an easy name and we can run with Jen. Right. So can you tell
1: us a little bit about Jen? Maybe where did you meet her? That's a great question. I was trying to remember where I met her. She was one of my earliest clients. When I started to branch out of group, she was referred to me, um, She had had a poor experience transitioning in a move, and uh, actually had come across an advisor who was trying to cancel her segregated fund. And I happened to get a look at the policy and he was trying to cancel it when the value was about 30,000, but she had a guaranteed value of 36. So I thought, what are you, what are you doing? So it was my first kind of red flag and, um, because we identified that together, she was able to come over and join my practice. And since then, we've, as not friends, but I've come to care very deeply for her.
2: That's, you know, as we should with clients, we do it for a long time, right? Um, I, I'm no different that way, Ellen. So the, that's, you know, $36,000, like I get such a small amount of money to, or $30,000, I guess, to, to sort of, I don't know, play around with, like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to try and Do something like that, but who knows, right?
1: She actually said something that I've taken to heart as the what my business should be predicated on. And we were talking about it. And as you said, this is not a lot of money. And she said, you know what, Ellen? This is not a million dollars, but this is my million dollars. This is all I have. And that I thought that's what we need to protect.
2: Absolutely. And that's a great way to look at it. Not a lot of money, you know, in you know, financial planning, client world, but for her, it's everything. And that's, that's important. So, um, and I feel like that is one of the areas where um, our industry falls down a little bit. So that's, uh, that's good for taking that on. Do you have other clients that sort of fit in that picture? Is this a a pretty common scenario for you?
1: I have a few. Um, I don't have investment minimums. And I made that decision early, simply because I didn't want to give the impression that you're you know, your worth is tied to your bank account. That that shouldn't be true or fair. Um, so I take referrals. Most of my business has grown by word of mouth, and people who come through my door, if they want to work with me, then I will probably work with them, regardless of what that financially looks like on my side.
2: And it's not like Jen is a you know a Henry, a high earner, not rich yet or anything like that. It's you know, and you're MFDA licensed. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. So you're really pretty free to to decide how you want to manage sort of a minimum asset threshold,
1: right? Currently, my minimum is twelve dollars.
2: <laughs> nice. Okay. I mean, you could put that on your website, I guess. I don't know. Um, I've thought about it. <laughs> nice. So I don't know what Google search is going to send you there. That'd be the interesting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> All right. What kind of SEO is that? So. When she approached you, she she clearly recognizes that, you know, it's not typical money to deal with a financial advisor. Even your quote here, I think, emphasizes that. Was she comfortable asking you questions or did you kind of have to coax her into, you know, it's okay, we can have a
1: conversation? Good question. I think she was quite comfortable with questions. Um, Her posture is certainly she doesn't want to bother me or, you know, um, she's very respectful but she also recognizes that her situation has become a little complex and she does need the help. And because we've built that relationship over time, I think she is comfortable asking. And because this is the first situation of this ilk with her, we're kind of learning in tandem together.
2: Yeah. It's, um, you know, as you uh, described the case to me and we'll get into the details a little bit more, but this is with one little exception, but, you know, we have our free uh, retiring on a low income course. And she is like, exactly the person who is the sort of target, I'm going to say client for that course. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And just everything you described, I was like, hey, this is stuff that's in that course. So do you set aside an amount of time each week for dealing with your clients that, you know, wouldn't meet a normal, let's say asset minimum? Or is there? Is it sort of just they get the same priority as everybody else? How do you think about allocating effort here?
1: That is something I've been actually wrestling with over the last little while. My firm is relatively new in the grand scheme of things. So while I was building, everybody gets the same priority. You know, it's who walks through the door. You do that work, no matter what the asset threshold is. But as things have started to scale, as there's growth, As this is happening, it has become um, something that I think I need to put some language and some rules around. I have not charged fee-for-service yet, even, you know, after getting the CFP and I've thought about it, but I haven't wanted to because I feel like it's a barrier to entry for people to reach out for help. And yet, you know, I have staff and I'm scaling, so I also have to pay attention to my own bottom line. And I've just been living in that tension. So I have not yet said, okay, I'm going to do 5% pro bono or any, I haven't put a structure around that, but I think I have. To. I think
2: it's good to have, you know, you have to, if you say yes to everything, right, then effectively you're, you're, you're not setting any constraints. You, you can't, you don't have unlimited capacity as you and I both, um, maybe, no? like I don't, of- I don't know.
1: Yeah. I <laughs>
2: But yeah, uh, it is cutting into my work life values dramatically. So, right. It's I was listening to Rick Kaler uh, talk about workaholism this morning, and I think we both have to be careful of this. <laughs> so, um, not that I'm qualified to diagnose you, but I think Ellen, it's. Uh, I'll take yeah, it. <laughs>
1: nice.
2: Um, yeah, and I think like the 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 so there's sort of you know the the like MFDA assets under management, like traditional way of billing there, and then you could be doing. Uh, fee only or advice only planning but that's not going to work for a client like she doesn't have money to pay you to do a financial plan anyway. so yeah the pro bono model is really probably the only way that somebody like this um gets advice now i'm going to say i know there are some credit unions that are going to take on some clients like this and that's something that i think they're already sort of living some of that pro bono um pledge but i'd love to see that across the industry like the five percent pro bono thing or Something like that. So, yeah. Sorry, I cut you off, Eleanor. Go
1: ahead. No, no. I was just saying I love that. I love that idea. And I think it would be very dignifying to everybody. It's democratizing for good financial advice. And to be honest, it is an excellent learning experience for a plan. right? If you only focus on one element, this stuff maybe falls off your radar. So I think it's very, very good and robust
2: to think about. I, and there are a couple of things in this case that we're going to hear that aren't unique to, to lower income, lower asset folks. It's uh, there's, there's some things here that I think are relevant across the board. Okay. Uh, so can you give us a little rundown on what's actually going on with Jen? Absolutely.
1: So she has her lira, which is from a past job right now, current market value is about 41,000 and she has a very small TFSA and um, a very small R, like six grand in the So for her, as we started to look at planning, she reached out and she's had a short-term disability. So she's had it before in her work. She went off for a few months, you know, just a bit of a soft tissue injury. She was able to come back, but working conditions make it worse. So she's in that horrible, can't work, want to work, you know, frustration. For interestingly, you asked a good question about her group benefits. She only has short-term disability. There is no LTD on her plan. Okay. Which is unusual. I very rarely see that on the group side. Um, it's a it's a quirky union job. Uh, she mostly has worked part time. So when she exhausted the short term disability and was still unable to work, then we went into EI. And unfortunately, when your income is part time, right, the EI it's it's better than nothing, but it's not the full payment. Um, her pension from her current job is very small. It'll be maybe a hundred dollars up when she chooses to take it. So not significant. And when I started to look at her income streams and this idea that perhaps she won't be able to return to this job, that's where guaranteed income supplement came. Onto the radar. So I have so
2: many questions. So first off, um, how many times did you read the benefits booklet before you came to terms with the idea that there was no long-term disability there?
1: It was so strange. I've, I personally have never seen that. Um, no LTD, just short term.
2: Yeah, it's so unusual. I, what's the, I'd love to like delve into this and see what the plan design concept that leads you to this is because you would think, you know, rely on EI and put in place a minimum LTD plan or
1: exactly. something like that. Yeah, exactly. very strange. Um, and yeah. as we've seen, not particularly helpful when your disability is ongoing.
2: Yeah, that's some, it's almost one where it'd be better if she could go back to work just long enough to, you know, requalify and then, what an odd thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the pension, and we didn't talk about this at all, so I might catch you flat footed here, but did you look at taking commuted value?
1: I'm not sure if that's an option. The documents that she had shown me were simply her forecast of her monthly income, if she took it at 62 64
2: 65 let's see hasn't started the pension benefit yet no
1: okay so yeah okay. that's worth
2: looking into yeah it i mean
1: it didn't seem to be something that she had considered but
2: yeah it's a tough one there's a whole as we're going to see with the gis probably being a fairly dominant part of her financial life there is a you no know, potential question there i don't know this is where the modeling gets tricky Okay, and I hadn't thought, I should have asked you that question before. Um, You know, you were good, like you emailed me, and I, I should have thought about whether you could take commuted value. I think I thought maybe the pension benefit had started already, but maybe I realized here that it hadn't. So, okay, so the short-term disability, this very unusual situation, what can you tell us about the short-term disability benefit? What do we know here?
1: It was only for four months, and it's exhausted. So she she had been on it then returned to work, put in her time, And then had actually taken a quite a fall in the, in the fall. She took a spill and ended up with a concussion. And so it was not the same injury. It was something new, went back on short term, exhausted that, but was not able to return to work. So that's when she went to EI.
2: And, and so now she's collecting EI. Interesting. Okay. Um, Unemployment benefits from EI, regular benefits
1: regular benefits, um, for disability or for sickness, but they end in the end of August,
2: they're done. Right. That's the 26 week benefit. And then after that runs out, she has no scheduled income. Correct. Okay. So that's where, um, and has she applied for a CPP disability?
1: She has applied. Um, she's got her fingers and toes and everything for us that she will get that of course, because of the impact of her regular CPP. Yeah. Um, she has also, she has not yet applied for the disability tax credit simply because in unpacking this with her doctor, when I suggested that she apply for it, unpacking that with her doctor, there's perhaps an opportunity to go back further. It's not just these last couple of injuries. There's another under, underlying health issue. So she may be able to go back to
2: and there's so much going on here now with the disability tax credit, right? I don't know if you've seen this, the application process has been uh, greatly simplified. Um, this is another future podcast guest actually. So
1: oh, benefits yeah. too. Are you going to interview yeah, that?
2: Gonna, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get uh, some combination of Christine and Wayne on the call here. So yeah,
1: I have been sending that to literally everybody I know that I think would perhaps be eligible um, simply because it's facilitating just a quick sidebar. I had another um, conversation with a fellow. He's a type one diabetic has been his whole life manages it very carefully with diet and exercise and his doctor won't apply for the DTC because he's not sick. Right. i like, Which mm, is... that's frustrating.
2: Yeah. That's aggravating when the medical professional won't play the game. That's um... so, well, he, I, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I love benefits too. I love what they put together. I think it's, so helpful for people and again it's not there there's not that element of predatory greed where it's like yeah we'll we'll do this for you and then we'll take 20 percent of your tax refund or whatever right so straightforward it's very fair it's very clear and i think it'll be really helpful so yeah,
2: kudos to you i do i've worked through it i did a, a trial run benefits too and it's very easy you spit back a nice form my my daughter qualifies for disability tax credit so i sort of did her case. Um, just as on their uh, their trial basis, and yeah, it came back just beautiful. It's uh, and now the, like my uh, my daughter's physician, the psychiatrist, doesn't do anything electronic. So yeah, right. that's lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, and nobody's getting a new psychiatrist in Edmonton today. This is not happening. No. So the um, the EI claim here. Um, does she actually sort of know what's going on with her EI? Is there a fair bit of hand holding? Does she just fill out the paperwork and kind of throw her hands up in the air? What's the
1: sense here? She is uh, a really intelligent person and she is very much an advocate for herself. I think, you know, one of those folks who... Life has not always been kind, and so she's taken matters into her own hands. She's very diligent, and she's she's wading through all of this paperwork on her own as well. So she has applied for it. She's on the phone with CRA. She she has her payments and income projections calculated to the pet. So she's very switched on.
2: That's That's very good. And I'm sure then that she's going to continue to have that level of awareness now as she's working through the rest of... Okay, that's... That's good to have that because um, I find with EI, a lot of people do just apply and then they're like, "Well, the money will show up, and it's either enough or it's not." Mm-hmm. Um, now, the you said the CPP disability application's not gone in yet. Um, of course, you mentioned the advantage here—not just that she gets the money, but this is meaningful for her because, and you said this will also preserve some of her CPP retirement benefit. She's
1: sixty. So I think it's important to look at like, she's right on the edge of that window to make some of these moves, which is another reason I wanted to reach out because I thought our window here to be wise is a five. So um, we're really hoping that she gets the
2: the disability. And yeah, it is. You're right. Like that fifty nine sixty. there's, and especially when she hasn't started her CPP retirement benefit yet, which is helpful for you here. This is a, yeah, it does create a little more planning opportunity. Did, did she come to you when she was like 59 and say, Ellen, should I start my CPP at 60? Or is it a conversation you ever had with her?
1: We had the conversation last year projecting out, you know, what does the pension look like? Which is where the GIS popped up onto my radar when I kind of calculated what she'd be looking at. But that was prior to the, the tumble she took in the fall. So adding in the layer of, of this disability kind of changed that conversation.
2: Do you have a sense here, and I know you're no physician, um, nor am I, but do you have a sense that like, is she going to live a, or is there a strong potential that she lives a naturally long lifespan or is there something here that might curtail that? And I know it's not an easy question.
1: It's not. And this is what I appreciate of working with somebody like hers. We can have those tough conversations, um, you know, because annuity rates are high. So just brainstorming, I thought, well, what if we looked at that with your Lyra to mm-hmm. see and she was able to write me back and say, oh, my doctor thought I'd be dead by 50. So, no, longevity is probably not a risk for me. She's fit, she's active, but she does have some health concerns that are out of her control. So, hopefully she has a nice long life, but that is not what she's has
2: So, then... The uh, disability tax credit, so you said, and I think this is um, sort of appropriate, the doctor is just sort of getting everything in order, figuring out whether there's going to be a retroactive application. Does she understand how that retroactive disability tax credit application works, Ellen?
1: That is a good question. That I'm not sure. I did encourage her to go back as far as she could with her medical records because of that, you know, 10 years backwards. Um, Obviously, we don't get the RDSP, so that's too bad. But a tax refund would not hurt Um, But I'm not sure if she spent a ton of time looking through that.
2: I know I had one client, one pro bono client. There's actually two, I guess it was a couple. And they were in a very difficult situation financially. um, And neither of them had ever applied for disability tax credit, both qualified for it. Very similar to what you're talking about, where there was an acute issue that had shown up um, that they, you know, that's what triggered the whole like they were off work and so forth. But it turns out that they had some chronic issues that they had never thought about as qualifying for DTC. They went back and applied. They ended up with know, $30,000 or $35,000. I can't remember. It was, for them, like a year's income, right, in their pocket. It was, yeah, and it really, it it's, they needed, like, they they needed a Band-Aid, and they really got it. It was like a, yeah, it was a big difference. So, yeah, that retroactive disability tax credit is um Potentially powerful. So, um, And you said no RDSP because, of course, she's over the age of, I mean, first off, over the age of 50, no grants, no contributions, no, right? So, yeah, that's, um, yeah, which, unfortunate, uh, but the plan is intended to work the way the plan works. And sh- she sort of fits into that, I would say, legislative intent with RDSP. So, or I guess fits outside the legislative intent, however you look at that and have you thought so you're in alberta like me um have you looked at h
1: we did and actually you that was really helpful guidance um to know how much she could make because i actually thought that she was going to maybe make too much and not qualify but we suggested that she apply anyway and um and then you provided some feedback that you can actually make up to 42000 which is quite a bit higher than i
2: thought And there's even the the math for it can be even a little bit more generous than that. But, you know, 42,000 is like a good number to start from. Um, And it depends what other source of income you have, because some stuff is a full clawback against H, and some stuff is a partial clawback. It it actually gets quite complicated. Um, But yeah, H is um, among the provincial disability plans, the one that you're going to collect sort of on the largest amount of other income still. Right. So if you were in Ontario, this would be a non-starter. If you were in Saskatchewan or BC, this would be a non-starter. Um, one of the curious things I find about this, and I don't think this is an issue for your client, but it it can, like my daughter's on H, and her um, biological father lives in BC and she'd love to go live with her biological father, um, but she can't. Yeah. She can't. Yeah. Because um if she moves to BC, the program there would cut off, she'd lose her only source of income. It's not really viable. So
1: yeah. Um,
2: it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a weird um I don't know, uh it's a it's like a uh whatever, a mobility handcuff, right? Now maybe this new Canada disability benefit shows up and have you paid attention to this thing at all, Ellen? The-
1: it has drifted across my radar. Um I, I because I am interested in the disability space, because again I feel like that's it's an underserved space, um, but I haven't done a deep
2: dive. No, and nor, I mean, there's no deep dive to do. This is the thing, is that um, the it just went to Senate, and the Senate committee came back with some kind of weird recommendations to base, I don't know if you saw this or not, to kind of force insurers to look at the offsets a certain way, but that's probably not going to fly, so I don't know. Um,
1: it's I, I actually do have empathy for people trying to design legislation, even with the mobility hand count, right? You think, well, if it's an Alberta income supplement, I guess you have to live in Alberta. We can't, I guess we can't factor in everybody's particular nuanced situation. Um And there are competing interests, certainly between the insurers and CPP disability. I have another client who was awarded CPP disability, but she's on long-term disability with her company. Thank God she had it; it will save her life. But um they had to. Yeah, as soon as she got CPP disability, she actually had to return some of the money to her insurance company, which you think is interesting, right?
2: That's that's a challenging one, and I know everybody always thinks that they're being treated unfairly when that happens, and you know there probably is some truth to that, but it it sort of how it's supposed to work right
1: it is yeah it's a complex landscape to try to make rules for so um, as frustrating as some of them are I understand there has to be structure it.
2: that's it right we just can't give away everybody all the money that they need all the time right
1: oh, that's it. So, oh um, and H um, was another point because she does have you know a small health and dental plan on her group benefits if she does end up terminating her position, then H will, will provide a little bit of coverage there so that's important for her
2: as well. That's true. Yeah, H puts you into a situation where there's um, yeah, a, a basic amount of health and dental coverage but it's it's better than what you'd have without it it can make a big difference. Um yeah. okay, so now she has this um modest uh RSP and Lyra, I guess small RSP and modest Lyra. Um have you thought about how you're going to manage those?
1: We were thinking it would make sense to certainly eliminate the RSP and put it into a TFSA and just get it off the table and out of the road, um, especially if she is on disability. So the math we've been doing is, you know, how much is she actually going to make in 2023? Is she going to leave her position? Um, what does 2024 look like? Do we take part now, part later? You know, just to minimize the tax issue. It's not a lot, but, you know, every dollar counts. And then with the Lira, yeah, the 50% unlocking, we want to try to get them out of those buckets and into the TFSA bucket to the best of our ability so it does not impact things like Asian GIS. Especially if
2: you get it done before 65, then your your TFSA doesn't create any offset against GIS, whereas your minimum lift withdrawals would. So Exactly. Yeah, um that's so the um, can I, what about asset allocation? What do you do around actually investing in a situation like this?
1: I, ironically, because she is a, quite an you know an intelligent person and has a lot of business savvy, she has more of a like a medium risk profile. She wanted to be fairly aggressively invested. Uh, we have benefited from that over the last, well, excluding twenty twenty two. Oh, so she she is well diversified. She would still probably look like a more of a balanced portfolio, um, but she had more of an appetite for equities than than I first assumed. Um, but now, today, especially post concussion, we're getting much more that conversation. You don't
2: know yeah, if you're going to have liquidity needs at some point here. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. concussions too. Just the yeah. This is a tough one concussions. It's uh, I feel all the um, empathy in the world for people who end up with concussions because it's such a, like outside of your control situation.
1: Right. And yeah. still, so, I mean, there's so many, you and I could both fall and get concussions and we could present completely differently. I know it's, it's a frustrating thing, especially for someone of high intellect who, like sometimes I'm just foggy, like, you know, it's, it's frustrating or maybe there's little memory gaps that weren't there before. Yeah. So
2: I have, yeah, I have tremendous, and hopefully she heals that beautifully. It it can happen. People do recover if do recover from concussions. Um, now what about modeling here? You sent me over your Excel that you had done, which I thought was a really nice Excel. It was sort of you just you were pretty. I'm gonna I don't want to say simple. That's but you know you laid out like one year's income in sort of Plan A, one year's income in Plan B, one year's income. I think three, three options. I can't remember two or
1: three. Yeah, we're trying to, um, again, because it started in the conversation last year, when do I quit? When do I take CPP? Do I take it at 60? Do I, you know? So I just sort of used those numbers and then extrapolated out the new information. Um, and I wanted to keep it clear. The goal of that was really to say, where are we at with the GIS? What do we have to do to make sure that we are not accidentally over that? Because I have a client um, who literally with her CPP OAS and her small pension, she makes an extra $150 and doesn't qualify for GI. it's so frustrating.
2: Yeah. Um, and yeah, you don't want to end up in that situation. I, I'm with you. So the, um, I know you used Excel here. Did you run anything in your, I don't know what financial planning software you use. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but was there any utility in in using your financial planning software here?
1: Um, I generally use Razor and I have to confess, I probably underutilize it for what it can do. But with this one, because we were sort of calculating down to the penny, I just felt more comfortable hammering it out in Excel.
2: And it's, it's like that current year problem, right? You're not like, and I get why you did it that way. At some point, you're going to have to look at you know what happens between 65 and 70, and what happens from 70 on, and w- whatever. But yeah, I I get the the sort of challenge there is you need a little more fidelity for like right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I thought this is going to serve our purposes for then this this finite window of time, and then we can when we make some of those decisions. And I think as I shared, what I found what I find tricky about this is that you know, this piece impacts this piece, which impacts this piece. So it's not linear. If, will she get CPPD or not? Will she get the disability tax credit or not? Everything impacts your planning ability. So being able to kind of hammer it out and just use Excel tangibly, for me, that was, that was the quickest, fastest way to get to that. But yes, planning software should make life easier,
2: right? So what do you think is important for her to understand? Like, I I get why you laid out the current year's income. How much does she have to know about like that, you know, 60 to 65, 65 to 70, 71 and on?
1: She's a planner. So I have my spreadsheet that I've been working on. And she just uh, yesterday shared the spreadsheet she's been working on. And it is her whole budget. So she wants to know to the dollar what she can expect. There are no surprises. We are not winging it. Okay. Um, she really needs to understand what the impact of our decisions are. So yeah, if we can get stuff into her TFSA, protect that GIS, she wants to know to the penny what she's going to bring.
2: And then does she, I assume then, that she has a really good um, approach to also budgeting her spending. Is that
1: true? She's very, very frugal, very careful. Yeah, she's actually just on a budgeting side, she's She's your ideal she's perfection, does not overspend.
2: <laughs> um, and then, you know, so let's say that the plan you present um, gets her like a hundred dollars more income a month than what she's budgeting for right now, just to choose an amount. What do you think that would like, would she spend that hundred dollars or would she sock it away? What What do you think would happen there?
1: That's a good question. And we, in just one of our conversations, she talked about something that she'd like to do for her home, um, a, an improvement to her place. And I thought it was interesting and it made me happy because she, as careful and frugal and diligent as she is, she also hasn't fallen into the trap of being miserly. You know, where you become so obsessed with saving money that you stop enjoying life. And she said, this, this thing would be important to me and it would be an investment. Um, again, she's not really worried about longevity. Um, and she just thought, this is something I want to do. And I would like to spend some funds on this. And I thought, you've got a really good balance. Um, I'm living within my means, but I'm not going to end up being miserable for the rest of my life. That is
2: nice because as the planner for you, right, as the financial planner, it gives you a little bit of, I'm going to say, motivation to you know, help her get everything right. And if you can come back with a good set of numbers for her, where like whatever, if this thing's going to cost her $10,000, that... You know, maybe that comes as part of the lira unlock or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's and, and you're right. It's um a little bit aggravating sometimes where people don't have something, don't have realistic things that they would like to spend their money on. So,
1: right. I mean, we have to we have to live life, and so I think as Canadians, we know we love to finance everything, and we probably live a little too largesse in terms of the debt loads that we carry. But you don't want to end up dying with a big, huge bank account and you haven't, you know, bought yourself a coffee or anything else. It doesn't
2: sound like she's had any problems with um with debt, or at least not recently.
1: Hates debt. Right. She pays for it. I,
2: I feel a little bit um, maybe intrusive asking this question, Ellen, but, you know, she's like 60-ish. She's got minimal assets. Uh, this disability clearly has not helped anything, and it sounds like she hasn't ever worked at maybe, or at least recently, worked at sort of high-paying jobs. Can you talk about? And I'd, again, I don't know how much of her history you know or how much you can share, but can you talk about what kind of lands somebody in this situation where they're, you know, fighting to make the most of a a rough situation like this?
1: Yeah, especially because she's she's so bright. Um, I think she started off life, as we all do, with bright-eyed and bushy tails. She worked in, um, I'd say, traditionally more blue-collar industry, construction, things like that, uh, oil and gas. So she had uh, the ability to earn a higher income. Um, and then I think a divorce is very, very expensive and very difficult, and hers was a bit fractious. So from what I understand, she took her kids and walked out with nothing. So she ended up having to rebuild her life from scratch, and as a single mom, that's tough. I don't care how much money you make, that is tough. So she has plugged away. Obviously, I'm sure that's where some of her financial diligence and stewardship came in to play from. She's been careful, but I think she was suffered a major financial setback and has just clawed her way back.
2: That is a tough one, where people sort of sacrifice everything to, you know, to not continue to be in a a bad relationship and maybe who knows whatever the kids were exposed to but to you know give the kids the upbringing you want them to have yeah that that's okay and, uh, and i knew that there had been a marital breakdown in there i wasn't sure how material that was but it's such a common thing to to see as the uh the like that that backbreaking decision for your financial life right
1: well and you know some marital breakdown there's child support there's spousal support there's half the pension, you know, all those things. I think she left what what was in her pocket. So when you start from zero, it's a long way to climb back.
2: And you see it, quite like, I don't know if she would have been entitled to any of that stuff, probably, but you see it so often, especially divorces like 20 and 30 years ago, where people just didn't necessarily fight for it. You know, maintenance enforcement was not as robust as as it is today. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, government retirement benefits here, we touched on this a fair bit already, but I'm wondering if you can give a little rundown here, if there's anything we missed around. Uh, let's start with Canada Pension Plan as a retirement benefit. Anything there that um, is material to her that you think is worth noting that we haven't covered? Not, uh,
1: not particularly. Um, I know that her initial last year, she wanted to take it early. And so we did the calculation on how much more she would make, even at the, you know, the lower value based on her projection, projected 60, age 65. We calculated it back and she took it at 60. Uh, I think she's going to end up with an extra $33,000 of income over that five year period, which was worth it to her. Again, longevity not being a risk. Um, but that's all changed. So deferring the CPP now makes sense, certainly to 65 how far how much further can we go maybe bolster that amount a wee bit especially if she gets the disability benefits the next fight Have you
2: seen her cpp statement
1: yes those are the numbers on my spreadsheet. i think she was looking at about roughly 600 at age 65 um i mean just check yeah just between 650 and 700 was the projection from last year
2: and i do agree with the decision to especially given that she might qualify for CPP disability. This this makes it uh, you know, a bad decision to start CPP retirement early. So, yeah. Um, old age security. So where does old age security fit in the picture here?
1: So I guess you, we can't take it till 65. Um, can't get GIS without OAS. So that feels like there's less wrangling. We just have to probably take that at age 65.
2: I I agree. This is not a case where I would look at deferring. It doesn't make sense here. Um, She'll have her 40 years of residency in Canada, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, GIS. So the, the real sort of complicated one here. So tell me about GIS for her.
1: So this is the first client that this is, like I said, been on the table for. And that's what's driving a lot of these really granular calculations, because we want to make sure she doesn't end up in that pickle where you know, you're $200 over and you lose the thing. Um, because, so I've calculated kind of a guesstimate of what her income will be if she gets CPP disability. Um, do we defer her small little $100 pension that's not terribly material, although it could be. Um, and then what does it look like at 65 to get her C- switch from the CPPD to CPP? Do we push that out so we can guarantee the GIS? And that's where all of the math has come in to see what makes the most sense. But I really think it's a powerful, powerful benefit. And I don't like seeing government benefits taken advantage of. I don't like people who perhaps don't need them taking them. But if there's anybody I've ever met who would benefit from this, it's her.
2: That's fair. You know, there so I know you just said that you don't like to see people take when they don't necessarily need it or whatever. There is this thing that happens sometimes with business owners where they've never put any money in their RSPs, right? And, you know, sell their business, big capital gain, lots of non-reg assets. You can potentially see some you know unusual GIS amounts in there for somebody who's still asset rich, but income poor. So but
1: income poor, right? Yeah, yeah. They never they never paid CPP or saved a dime. And, right. uh, but they do have, yeah. I mean, obviously there's some, some moral judgment to be made there that perhaps is not mine to make, but when you see somebody who absolutely ardently is the candidate for this benefit and deserves it, then I want to make sure that we do the, everything we can to help her get it.
2: 100%. Um, so the yeah, going back to and I asked a little bit about this already, but going back to you know having had the divorce previously and you know, maybe um others what other other whatever other factors have brought her into this situation, uh, how does this influence how you deal with her? Like you know, do you consider there's maybe past financial traumas or mm-hmm. not maybe having, and it sounds like she has a good relationship with money today, but maybe not having a good history with money? Does this influence how you, how you interact with her?
1: Um, I would say that probably most of my client conversations are very broad and generalized, right? Well, we think this, we you know we're 20 years away from retirement. So we, we kind of do some projections, but it's very open-ended with her. It is to the pen. And so it's really um, challenged me to get granular, really pay attention because that is a tremendous import to her. Um we I think, as I said, I think she has actually a really healthy relationship with money. I think she's careful, but not miserly. And I think she's been a very good steward of her funds. So I like to honor and respect her relationship with that. But she is, yeah, to the penny. and most people aren't. So it's definitely been <laughs> bust out the spreadsheets
2: that's good. This is a super interesting client, right? I think, again, there's probably, Pays a lot of dividends in terms of education for yourself about, you know, not just about like technical matters like GIS or whatever, but she sounds like just a good client to interact
1: with. Yeah. She's a, she's an excellent person. And like, I think I said, like has had maybe more bad shakes than your average folk, but still gets that tremendous work ethic. Just, you Mm -hmm. know, a really excellent, I guess you'd say salt of the
2: earth person. Yeah. That's, All right. Is there anything that uh, I should have asked about her situation that I didn't ask?
1: Um, The only thing that you may know is when I dug into her there, of course, which I took over, that we realized the jurisdiction is actually Ontario, even though she worked here. So in terms of the unlocking, in terms of the jurisdictional rules, obviously, I can go and look them up. But I thought, is there anything that we should know that differs between Ontario and Alberta in this moment?
2: There is, and you're going to put me on the spot here, but Alberta is really good with small amounts unlocking. Yeah. So, you know, normally what you would do in Alberta is you would do the 50% unlock, you would have half going to the RSP, and then you're left with, you know, $20,000-ish. And your small amount, then you're going to trigger the small amounts. And in Ontario, I want to say that small amounts threshold is larger than it is in Alberta, but I'm going entirely from memory there. Um yeah so that would be yeah that's curious that it's an Ontario jurisdiction it is um, yeah because she clearly she was working here the company she was working for I know it's a national company I don't want to name them necessarily but yeah they're and they're I don't know that's okay that is it's actually
1: not from this current company it's from her old oh. job so something different but it's still it was i think a government level job but a provincial government. So we were surprised that the jurisdiction was federal or Ontario, provincial, but Alberta provincial government, some uh. something working in the provincial government, but the jurisdiction is Ontario.
2: Interesting.
1: It is interesting. And it kind of threw us for a bit of a loop. So I know I had looked at small amounts and um, just from doing some preliminary reading, it looks like it has to be a certain percentage of the YMPE that they'll give you. Maybe is it forty
2: percent? That's from. I'm just so I believe in Alberta. What do we have here? You know what? Ontario is twenty um, percent of YMPE. If 20%. my Googling serves me well here, so roughly what's that? Uh, One fifth of sixty-seven thousand dollars. So what's the sixteen thousand dollars? So fifteen thousand dollars. Fourteen fourteen thousand dollars. I'll get there eventually. Um, so thirteen thousand seven hundred dollars, and the. Um, Alberta
1: Maybe Alberta locking.
2: Yeah, Alberta's larger. Alberta's um yeah. 10 how old you are. So um but yeah, it's uh 26640. I don't know what that's based on. This is interesting. 26640 if you're old over 65 in Alberta and 13320 if you're under. And then of course the other thing you can do is you can take a few years of income and then take your small amounts unlocking too, right? So you're not it's not like a decision you have to make today so the unlocking thing is interesting and there are you know normally younger people I see where they're sort of playing around with that but um that's it's a it's a good comment a good question so uh, all right and then you and I both listened to the Kitsis and Carl podcast so um I, I think Carl always says every client ultimate every financial planning question ultimately am I going to be okay so is she going to be okay
1: I think she's going to be okay she has a small home she has a paid for vehicle that's reliable. She is a steward of her finances. She's careful. Um, she pays attention. The GIS would be, you know, bring some life into her her plan for that time period, but she does have her, you know, decent amount of CPP. It's certainly not the minimum. Uh, she had her full OAS, a little bit of the pension, and she does um, she's interested. she has a bit of a small business in the house. That she could supplement, you know, maybe five or 10 graduates. So I think
2: she's going to Yeah, I think the biggest thing in there, I'm going to say first and foremost, her own sort of financial capacity, but having somebody on your side makes a big difference in these cases. This is, I think, a real win. So kudos, Ellen, for uh, bringing on a client like this that I know a lot of people would not normally seek out. But I, I, and that said, I do know a lot of people in the industry who would, and I just think we need a, a model for it. This is, I think we're missing. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. Uh, that's great, Dylan. I really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, I love when this happens, you know, you emailed me with these client questions and I said, would you come on the podcast and talk about it? And uh, we haven't had enough of this recently. So thanks very much for doing this. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for a, being willing to entertain these questions because I know that you are a busy fellow with lots of things on your plate. So I'm really grateful for your 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 compassion and your willingness to give your wisdom and your experience to me and to my clients. So thank you for that. And thank you for having a podcast to even have the conversation on. It's,
2: it's uh, lots of fun with it, as you know. So Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks. I've lots to cover here. Let's see if I can get through it all. Um, so first off, I'll just correct myself here. The unlocking rules for small amounts in Ontario and Alberta are both very similar, actually. Um, these are 40% of YMPE. That's the rule in Ontario. In Alberta, it's 20% of YMPE uh, under age uh, 65 and then 40% of YMPE over that. So actually a little more generous in Ontario. You do have to be at least 55 to take advantage of that unlocking in Ontario. So there you go. The other, the reason I asked, Ellen, we talked about this afterwards offline um, about the CPP statement is I was curious about uh, the credit split here. So on your statement, if you look at the years when you were married and then there's a marital breakdown, there should be a CS coding on the CPP statement. This probably won't show up for Jen in this case because CPP doesn't actually know necessarily until you tell them that you've gone through that marital breakdown Um, and because Jen was married and then um, had a divorce there's no sort of statute of limitations on when she can apply for that credit split. So this could give her a little bit of a boost to her CPP um, when she applies for her CPP uh, disability and or retirement benefits. It's going to come at the expense of her ex's CPP, which has um, whatever it's other considerations. You can deal with that accordingly. But the other thing I want to take a second on here is pro bono in general. I've touched on this a little bit here and there. Um, I'm still going to find a way to get somebody on from the pro bono community here in Edmonton. But I have at least two ways that people can get involved now in pro bono planning. You can do what Ellen did as well. I guess it's a third way, which is just to go find people who are interested in this. I would really love it if every financial advisor, financial planner in the country said, I'm going to commit 5% of my overall workload to pro bono clients, people who really can't pay me anything, but where I can bring a lot of value to them. I like the sort of idea of that 5% because it puts sort of a minimum and maximum to it. Uh, you don't want to get dragged into this to the point that it's taking up all of your time. You still need to run a business and you know you want to work with clients with money and clients who have other interesting cases as well. So you know 5% to a maximum, and then if we take on sort of five percent, we're helping out you know a chunk of people who otherwise wouldn't get access. I think this kind of thing would go a long way to solving some of the access issues that we see out there. So let's think about that. If there's a way we can do that, now how do you do that? Well, like I said, you could just go find clients, sort of get lucky enough to have referrals like this, like Ellen did, or if you happen to be in Edmonton, I have some. Nonprofit organizations that are looking for help here through the United Way's Empower You program, and I'm trying to expand that a little bit. So, if you know nonprofits in Edmonton that could benefit from this, I have met with um, one service agency here in Edmonton for the last couple months that uh, where we're trying to get them on board with this, and then. The other is nationally through the Financial Planning Association of Canada. Now, you have to be a QAFP or a CFP certificate to participate in this program. But the program here uh, sort of pairs up people based on an intake form managed by um, FPAC. And it's quite good. I uh, give credit to this. Lots of people at FPAC involved here. Uh, Mark Lamontagne and Leticia Fluitt and uh, pr- uh, past guest, Brett Bartenson. David Dick, Spencer, oh, Spencer Malice, sorry. So lots of good folks involved here. And yeah, thanks everybody for putting that on, as well as actually past episode guest, Jason Pereira, who heads up FBAC. So check out those pro bono opportunities. If you need some help with it, reach out to me, jason.watt at businesscareercollege.com. I think there's lots of good stuff to be done here.
0: number is six. The number is
2: six. Our next episode will be in uh, two weeks time. And it's interesting, actually, Ellen mentioned uh, sort of tax policy here or the difficulty in making good policy. And the next episode, we're going to see a lot of this. We're going to talk to John Shell about employee ownership trusts and uh, where these are and where we'd like to get them a pretty interesting episode in terms of making both sort of tax policy and good uh, succession planning options. So again, uh, please do join us in two weeks time. Thanks.
0: If you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe, Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward Um, so i would just launch the course here and i can watch the episode from here Uh, now if you happen to be already listening to it on youtube or whatever the case is you can just navigate right into the quiz you start your quiz and you're just going to go through the whole thing and then at the end of it you'll be able to see your certifications so we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products we bring this up and we Click on wall certificate, and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits. 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of learning opportunity they might not have known about.